You're listening to a recording of a live radio show on NPR News. If you want to listen to us in real time, you can stream our show live weekdays at 9 a.m. Central. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Good morning, I'm Carrie Miller. This is NPR News. Coming up, why don't more of our political representatives exhibit qualities of great leadership? This is a show that was suggested by a caller, and I hope you'll think about this. What are the leadership qualities that you believe are missing from our political leaders? Something like decisiveness, clarity, good communication skills, selflessness, compassion, Think about it and call in. I'm going to talk to Ken Rudin about this, and then we have two guests, and I really want to hear from you. What are the leadership qualities that you fear are missing from so many of our political leaders? Here's the phone number, 651-227-6000, I'm on Twitter at Carrie NPR. The political junkie Ken Rudin is here. Ken, hello. I've missed you. How are things? Good morning. Good morning, Carrie. Long time no speak. That's right. <laughs> I know. I've been traveling. Hey, Ken, do you remember when we got that call from a listener uh, a couple weeks ago, maybe three or four weeks ago, and you and I were talking about the idea of the moral compass, and he called to say, I just don't know why more of our political leaders don't rise to the occasion, right, to exhibit these qualities. Um, ha- do a little consideration now, because we're going we're gonna to do about 45 minutes on this, and tell me why you think that is. Well, I'm not sure if I agree completely that there is a lack of moral co- uh, uh, co- compass uh, with our leaders. Of course, some people who don't like where the president, President Trump, has been on issues like race and gender and and civility, I mean, there, there is that. But right before that, you had, you know, you, you had Bill Clinton, who was the empathizer in chief. You had Barack Obama, who also stood for, you know, the kind of decency that many people feel. I mean, in other words, I don't think this is a, a broad brush um, uh, tarring of our political leaders. But I would think that, that certainly if you're looking at Washington today, the fact that nobody can talk to each other. And the fact that you have a president of the United States who, as we expect in tomorrow's State of the Union address, will be probably more likely uh, blasting the Democratic Party rather than working on solutions. There is a a tragedy in all of this. You know, one of the things that I've thought about, and, and I'll ask our political scientists about this, too, is I feel like we think we want brave, courageous leaders, but we often vote in low risk leadership. And and one of the examples of that is what happens every time the conversation about doing something to solidify Social Security comes up or the question about Medicare. Voters are up in arms at, at almost every solution to doing something about Social Security. I don't know that we want risk takers or people that are going to give us news that we don't want. And yet that's the kind of thing that you know, in an abstract way, we'd say we want as a quality of leadership, someone who's brave and courageous. Well, you know, something that I don't know, um, again, I don't know if I agree completely with that about regarding that, that we want low risk leaders. I think of uh, given what was going on with price with uh, with food prices and gas prices 
and unending wars in Iraq and Afghanistan and what happened with, uh, with, with Katrina. There was a dissatisfaction in the Bush presidency that really elected, that brought us to have somebody, uh, uh, you know, like Barack Obama in 2008. And then when Barack Obama seemed to fail or lose his way by 2016, after eight years of Barack Obama, people felt that Donald Trump would not allow the status quo to continue any longer. And they elected, well, not the majority of the people, but he is the 45th president. Uh, Donald Trump was elected. And I don't think anybody would think of Donald Trump as a low risk candidate. I mean, if you want no, the low risk, that's true. You could just go to low energy. You know, how about Mr. Low Energy <laughs> Jeb Bush? Right. Right. I mean, so I think both Obama but, and Trump, in their own ways, offer tremendous changes in the status quo. By the way, though, Trump made a lot of promises that he was not going to be able to keep, and people wanted to believe, or some voters wanted to believe in that. Let me grab a call, Ken to Dan in Rogers, Minnesota. So, Dan, what, what are you thinking about on this? You know what I'm thinking about is the people that you talk about have all those really good qualities, but mm-hmm. the problem is it's all self-centered. Meaning what? <laughs> no, why? Why do you say that? Well, okay, they get into office, and right away they want to, you know, do this and do that, and it's all raising taxes to create more money for the government, which is basically themselves, and we get nothing done for us. I mean, the bottom line is like climate. It doesn't take a brainchild to realize that there's something going on, whether you like it or not. You want to take care of what you got, okay? Huh. So, so yeah. Ken Dan is suggesting that something happens between the the campaign and the communication with voters, and then they get to Washington and they kind of lose those qualities that that we thought they possessed. Yeah, I'm not sure if they lose the qualities or that reality sets in. Because it's one thing to run for president and say you're going to do all these things. Look, Barack Obama had 60 Senate seats for quite some time, and he still didn't get the Dreamers, you yeah. know, or the DACA or, or or immigration overhaul or gun laws. I think you you can have all the you know the the lofty aspirations as you want when you're running for office, but then there's a thing called Congress. Look, JFK promised all these new things when he was elected in 1960, but he had a Southern conservative Democratic uh, Congress that basically stopped him at almost every front. I think the only, re- obviously the only reason we saw civil rights legislation passed, passed in 64 was out of respect to President Kennedy, but when he was president, even his own Democratic Party wouldn't go along with him. Call here from Jason in Forest Lake. Hi, Jason. What occurs to you on this? Well, you know, I kind of want my leaders to be able to listen to the best information available and make a decision based on that information from experts. Mm-hmm. The other day you had a Republican on who changed his mind on climate change. That's and you right. asked him Bob why Inglis. when you, what, yeah. yeah, when he was a senator, why didn't he think about climate change? And he said, quote, Al Gore was for it. I was against it. <laughs> but once he took in information... He was able to then look at the facts and and make a better decision. So that's what I really want from my leaders. You have a really good memory, Jason. Wait, that's exactly right. We're actually going to rebroadcast that conversation because we got so many comments on it. So I appreciate you remembering. I like it. Ken, that makes a lot of sense, right? Know what you know, but also know what you don't know and be willing to be persuaded. Okay, two things about that. I love, I love what Jason had to say. First of all, 
Bob Inglis got a con. I, I mean, I didn't hear your show, but Bob Inglis, the, the congressman from South Carolina, got a conscience after he lost his Republican primary <laughs> yes, and yes. was defeated for re-election, and suddenly he said, wait a second, what, I am now a statesman. Yes, Mr. Cynical, but yes, well, no, that's but true. true. That's what happens. <laughs> and But, but the, the bigger point is, look, remember, Donald Trump knows more than all the generals. He knows more than all the intelligence agencies. He will, he will no longer have intelligence briefings because he doesn't need that. Never, Democrat or Republican, have I ever seen a president who makes the case that he knows more than everybody else and doesn't need these briefings because because he, he's he's very smart. He's a very what did he say? A very very smart person, or no? I'm like a very smart person, which is even better. <laughs> okay, uh, Amber says on Twitter, humility is a needed competency for our political leaders. The recognition that no one person can do it alone. <laughs> a good response to what you just said there, Ken. Uh, Joan says, I highly recommend Leadership in Turbulent Times by Doris Kearns Goodwin. Best recap of leadership I've ever read. Uh, and KJ says, our political leaders seem to have forgotten that they are civil servants and that they are supposed to serve the best interests of the public, not their own interests. I think this is a really timely discussion, Ken, because I wanted to talk to you about Governor Northam in Virginia. Um, you know, there are I'm sure there are some voters who want him to tough it out, but he's getting a lot of advice from people saying, do the thing that is less damaging right to the office and to the state, and that is step down. And, you know, this builds cynicism when you see a guy, it was me, it wasn't me, I don't know whether to resign, that kind of thing. How do you assess what's going on there? Well, that, that's a very good point. First of all, uh, not to sound like a partisan, although this does sound like a partisan response, but I do dismiss calls from Republicans in Virginia for Ralph Northam to step down because of appearing in blackface when these same Republicans were backing Corey Stewart, who was a pro-Confederacy Republican running for the Senate last year. Yep. So for yeah. all these alligator tears you're hearing from Republicans, they say, wait a second, where were you? Where were you on Charlottesville? Where were you on Corey Stewart? Where were you on Steve King, who has been uh, the congressman from Iowa, who's been mouthing anti, well, somewhat quasi-racist things for years. But having said that, you know, it's just like with Al Franken. I mean, Al Franken, whatever you think of what Al Franken did, he he came along, or the information about Al Franken came along when the Me Too movement was at its apex. Mm -hmm. And when that happens, you really, you just, you get run over by it. Whether he should have resigned, should have been forced out or whatever, he really had no choice. But and that is the case with Ralph Northam, because you have not only Republicans telling him to leave, although notably not the, the African-American lieutenant governor or Barack Obama, but you have Terry McAuliffe, you have Mark Warner, you have Tim Kaine, you have the Democratic, you have presidential candidates, Kamala Harris and Cory Booker and Julian Castro, all saying but, it's time for yeah, him to go. But Ken, this is why I put that, that I phrase that as, what is the higher principled thing to do when it's clear that your moral authority is deeply damaged. I mean, whatever this means for his own career, we're watching him struggle to put the office above his own personal ambition. And that's when 
uh, you know, this is when I come back to the core of what we're going to talk about here, these leadership qualities. What are your highest principles about serving in this office? And I don't know that he's demonstrating them. Well, here's the problem for him is just that it only happened on Friday. And here we are Monday. And I think everybody agrees his political career is finished. And again, as I said, when you have uh, the Republican Party represented fairly or unfairly by Steve King and Charlottesville and Corey Stewart and a president who has made racially insensitive and, and ethically insensitive and gender insensitive comments for the past two and a half years, the Democratic Party feels we are different. Yes, we do sacrifice our own. Yes, we do eat our own, as we saw with Kirsten Gillibrand uh, leading the charge for Al Franken to leave. But I think if we're talking about moral leadership in this country, which the Democratic Party seems to be very strong on, that is more important than Ralph Northam's personal political future. I, I want to play just a little bit here, Ken, of what Northam said in a very winding, somewhat odd press conference over the weekend. Let's listen. I am not and will not excuse the content of the photo. It was offensive, racist, and despicable. When my staff showed me the photo in question yesterday, I was seeing it for the first time. I did not purchase the EVMS yearbook, and I was unaware of what was on my page. When I was confronted with the images yesterday, I was appalled that they appeared on my page, but I believe then and now that I am not either of the people in that photo. Ken, what do you say to the the voters who say it happened a long time? And, and I heard you on the context of the moment, but it happened a long time ago. He's clearly committed to uh, racial equity because his policies uh, would indicate that. So what's the answer back to that? You know, it reminds me, though, uh, see, I mean, look, look, I don't know how anybody could possibly think that appearing in blackface in 1984, we're not talking about 1884, we're talking about 1984, how anybody could think that is acceptable. And the fact is, he first said, well, I don't think it's me in the picture, reminds me of Donald Trump when he heard the Access Hollywood tape, uh, when he was on the bus with Billy Bush, and said, I don't think that voice is mine. I mean, you know if you said it or not. And again, he may have been blind. He, Northam, may have been blindsided by this because it's happened so quickly. But I think he heard his own case by first saying, well, maybe it was me and now it's not me. And and that's why I think so many Democrats feel, look, we have a state legislature to deal with. We have uh, in, in Virginia, both houses of the state legislature are up. The Democrats are within several seats of winning both houses. They picked up 15 seats two years ago uh, in the House of Delegates. And they don't. And they feel that the party and the future of the party in Virginia is bigger than one and person. One by man. the way, and you've got a rising star as a lieutenant governor, right, Justin Fairfax. That's right. I mean, I, I mean, again, he's been, he's been one of the most quietest, the, the quietest of all the people in this situation. But I think for obvious reasons. Uh, Ken, really great to talk to you again. Thanks for kicking this off, and we're going to continue the conversation. Thanks much. You just heard a recording of a live radio show on NPR News. To add your voice to the discussion, you can call in at 800-242-2828 or tweet us at Carrie NPR. 
And if you miss us live, you'll find all our shows by subscribing to this podcast. You can send us your questions or comments by emailing talk at npr.org.